that's how we grow as a society though. That's how we become stronger and more united as a society by understanding each other. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salo. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And our guest today, I read her book. It's a children's book called A Good Kind of Trouble. I absolutely fell in love with it and I had to reach out to the author because I also found out that this book was on a banned book list in school libraries. So I wanted to somehow navigate this conversation. Not all school libraries. Not all school libraries. We do need to, in certain places in this country that are of a certain color. Which, you know, we don't want to get in specifics, okay. but yeah. Well, Texas. All right. Well, okay. well, I'm going to put it out there. You said it. You said it. Not me. You said the T word. I did not say the T word. I didn't say the T word. You said it. I reached out to her because I enjoyed the book so much. And I wanted to navigate this conversation in a very careful way where we were able to highlight the achievement and the beauty of the book, but not neglect the politics of it. But I also don't want to get the politics. I mean, by politics, I mean being banned. But I didn't want to talk about the banning process so much that it eclipsed the discussion of her book. So we have an absolutely lovely conversation. She talks about growing up and there were no main characters or female main characters who were Black. And she wrote this book. It's also for her daughters. It's extremely charming. You've got all of the childhood angst in there, but it does take place with the environment of Black Lives Matter. And that was probably the, you know, that's probably what made it onto the banned book list. And we even asked her, well, I asked her, do you think the people who wanted to ban your book actually had read your book? And she says, no. And I am in full agreement because it is just absolutely sweet, adorable, and timely. And the way that she handles the issues of today is in a very caring and lovely manner. It's in an educational way and it's in with grace. And she is very much aware that she has a young audience that she is writing this for. I think this is for everybody. Yeah, I, I during the episode, the, I spoke about a passage in the book that spoke to me as an Arab American, you know, growing up in the United States and having my own angst and dealing with my own issues. But there was this one passage that was written beautifully that I point out as to, oh my gosh, like I could totally take that in as my own kind of an experience. I'm not going to give it away. I mean, I I think I read part of the passage during it and, and just kind of tie it into, hey, you know, that experience that you're explaining in your book, which was unfortunately banned, me as somebody of, of I don't know if Arabs are necessarily of color, but we're definitely some kind of a unwanted minority, uh, it could relate to. And thank, and, and I thanked her. I said, thank you for writing that passage. It really meant something to me. So it just kind of goes to, you know, some of the themes that we talked about when we had Tom Keith on the show, where we're, we're all allies, right? Those in the minority, those that are struggling with these issues, we're all allies and we got each other's backs. And I really felt that during this episode and in particular for this book that was written. Lisa Moore-Rome, I want to make sure that we say the author's name. I uh, I had written to Lisa and I said, this is a book that I would want for my daughter to read. So I am really grateful that there's authors like her out there. And I also just want to give a heads up that she won a Walter Dean Myers Honor Book, a School Library Journal Best Middle Grade Book, an NPR Best Book of the Year. So yeah, she has tons of accolades for this. And um, it was her first children's book too that she put out there. She's got two more. Maybe we're going to get her on the pod again. I hope so. And I hope some of our readers will go out and buy it because she specifically says on this episode that this book banning has affected her sales. We get into that, into this. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, we're going to talk about a good kind of trouble. I'm so excited. Okay. (laughs) I'm so giggly. I think I just genuinely enjoyed your book so much just as I was reading and I was thinking about my own angst at that age. And I think you captured it in such a sweet way that would also be really, really helpful for young people who are reading this, just to know the the conundrums that you have with friends, the crushes, the trying to go out for sports, that all of that is normal. And that's all part of adolescence. And it all works out. You've got some really great, great characters who are mentors and kind of help things along like the track coach. So I guess this is your first children's book, correct? 
Correct. What was that process like? Like what brought you to say, I'm going to sit down and I want to pen this. Did something happen? And you thought this is a story that I've been working with and I want to, that's been in my mind and I want to write it. You know, it's interesting because when I first sat down to start writing a novel, it was not a middle grade novel at all. It was an adult horror story because I was a huge Stephen King fan, still am. You know, when you want to write something, you tend to write what you like to read. And I was well past the age of middle grade when I was starting to write my first novel. So I was like, you know, I love reading horror. This will make sense to try to write something like that. And I got probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 pages in. I liked the story, but I I had never written a novel before. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know how to plot very well. While I was working on that, my kids were getting older, you know, writing a book takes a really long time or it can, particularly you haven't been published yet. And so you have no deadlines. And I was looking at the situations that my daughter was finding herself in as, you know, she was about nine or 10 years old at the time. And I thought how interesting it was that a lot of the things that she was going through were the exact same things that I had gone through at that age. Things that I would have thought certainly would have changed so many years later, particularly when it came down to kind of racial divides that young people can put themselves in. Not No one tells them to do it, but they can divide themselves in that manner. I thought, well, this is really interesting. I was a huge, huge reader growing up and I loved books about all sorts of things, but I loved books by Judy Bloom that focused on issues about friendship. I thought, you know, maybe I should try my hand at writing for a different audience and just see how that goes. Um, and when it started off, it was a little bit more autobiographical than the book ended up being. And it just was so much easier to write. I think partly too, you know, since my daughter was reading books for that age group, I was reading a lot of books with her for that age group. And so I could really see how those books worked, what the voice sounded like at that age. It felt important. There weren't hardly any books, you know, like none that I could find where there was a black main character. And as a black mom, you know, with a a young black daughter, you know, I thought it's too bad that she doesn't have books that show her. So I wanted to recognize that right towards that. It was before any We Need Diverse books had started up. And it was actually before there was a cause called Black Lives Matter, because I started working on this quite some time ago. And it really started off as a book that looked somewhat at race, but looked much more at friendship issues and just what it was like to grow up and have the perspective of a young Black girl. But as I kept working on it, videos started coming on the news and um, I started worrying that my book was not at all reflective of what life currently looked like for a kid growing up today. And I wanted to make sure that it was much more like honest and reflective of that. So the story started incorporating the issue, the cause Black Lives Matter and police brutality and all of that. It became an important part of the story. There was one part in the story where I just, I could really feel it when Shayla is asking her mom about what is going on in the news with the police shooting. And it was at one point where I think her mom was driving and just kind of tightened her face a little bit, like not now. Like it was just, it I just felt the amount of pain and emotion that the mother must have been feeling. And then Shayla, the main character, just not comprehending. And I think there's something with that innocence that you put in where the child can clearly see a problem. <laughs> like, how is it? Like, just, just not understanding that this seems to be so obvious and that somewhere along in our lives, we make things more complicated. And the mom is dealing with her entire history. This is what I felt, the entire history and the real understanding of the cultural significance. And Shayla in her innocence is just like, but it was wrong. 
it was right. wrong. And it was just such a, I mean, it really touched me because I was thinking this is great for children who are reading. This is great for not only black children, but I would imagine children from all different backgrounds to just have a sense of, you know, what is going on in the world and how much that could impact their interactions with their parents or with their friends. Yeah, exactly. Children tend to be, for the most part, you know, so open and so, so wanting to understand how the world works. And I think that as much as they can believe in the fantastical, they also can be really logical, you know, things Mm -hmm. are supposed to make sense. And I can remember being in elementary school, learning about slavery and hearing about racism and truly believing with all my heart that if I could just talk to somebody who had those beliefs, I could show them that I really was a person and that I wasn't someone that they should you know, hate because of the color of my skin. Like it, it, like racism as a concept was something that I could not understand because I thought, how could someone dislike me or think that I was not even human because of the color of my skin? Like that doesn't make any sense. I clearly am human. And so, um, you know, it took me a long time to learn like, oh no, like I would not be able to convince someone like someone who has that type of hate in their heart. They would not be willing to sit down with me and be convinced of another way. And really, you know, that scene that you mentioned in the book, it was really difficult for me as a mom watching images that I thought, you know, it's hard for me to see this and accept the way that some people in the world look at us. And I I knew with certainty that if it was hard for me as an adult, it had to be so much harder for a young person. I had to have that moment of Shayla questioning, you know, like, why would someone hate me? What is that about? And to show how hard it would be for a parent to get those types of questions from their child. I think you did a really terrific job of the passage that Gwen is talking about, passage about the mother is trying to explain why the police are acting perhaps maybe a certain way. Uh, And and the way that you described it was, okay, like if you eat unhealthy food for a long time, you're going to be unhealthy, right? Well, for too long, people have been fed a diet about black folks, about folks with brown skin, making them think we're really scary. And that's how the police have been trained to act. It's going to take a long time to change people's minds. That passage spoke so much to me because as an Arab American myself, and, I, and I'm out there speaking on many different podcasts, and me being Arab American affects the organizations that I'm a part of and my own personal writing, whether that's under a pen name or anything. This is the exact reason why I'm out there and speaking as to what my experience was like growing up as an Arab American, because in the 1980s and the 1990s, and even into the 2000s, you would always associate you know, Arabs with terrorism. And as a young Arab American growing up, I thought that the entire world thought that all Arabs were terrorists because every time you literally turn on a TV, we were literally portrayed as terrorists or there'd be a news story that would associate Arabs with terrorism and the Arabic language with that. And that this passage spoke to me because I, my goal in my life, and I've always promised to say, no, I need to help others out there realize that not all Arabs are terrorists. It's an extremely small minority. And it's up to me to try to help people realize that by realizing there are less of the, of the quote unquote bad Arabs. And I have to help, I have to help in the retraining of the world as well. So I really enjoyed reading that passage. The way that you wrote it was excellent. And I do think it kind of pinpoints the problem of why certain groups have been painted as quote unquote bad um, in the past. And I think it does have a lot to do with training and media and just re- when you overly focus on the bad, that compounds and has negative impacts uh, that take a long time to get fixed. Exactly. And, you know, partly too, one of the things that I wanted to be careful of in the book, which is makes it very ironic with what's going on right now, is at no point, at no time did I want to have a message in the book that even implied that the police were bad, that it was this, have this 
setup of it's us against them, the police are bad, black people are good, and this is what's happening. Because I'm like, that's not what the story is. That's not what the reality is. And, you know, I have police officers in my family. I have a lot of respect for the men and women who do that job. I think that just what, like what you were talking about, Rudy, it's going into trying to figure out why these things do happen. Because if you meet someone who is fair-minded and, you know, you think like, okay, well, they're not the person who's going to be treating someone, you know, like this because they're a good person. They have a good heart. So and you think, well, then why would they make a different choice? Why would this be happening? And I really spent some time thinking about that. I have friends who, you know, even though they're, they're friends with me, it doesn't make a difference when they see someone black that they don't know, particularly a black man, and they have a reaction of fear. It's some, you know, part of me says like, well, they should know better. You know, they know me, they know my husband, they should know better. But it's like what mama says in a good kind of trouble. It's like, you've been fed a certain diet. It's really hard to try something else, you know, and to move away from that. And just like we've seen with all Arabs, you know, Arab American or, or otherwise of this diet of, you know, like, oh, of course, you know, that it must be a terrorist. It's like, well, yes, because every movie showed that to be true and played into that complete falsehood. If people don't know anything else, then they just go down this path of thinking it must be true. I've always seen it that way. I've always seen this to be the case. Um, And they don't even recognize that it's like, oh, but you only actually saw that to be the case in fictionalized accounts. Yeah. Yeah. And in in fictionalized as well as you know, quite frankly, the news of the 80s and 90s. I mean, and the right. reality is there, there were plane hijackings, there were terrorist acts, and the, they were done. You know, we, we didn't have we didn't have the corner on terrorism, but what was getting reported a lot were Arab terrorist attacks. And so it's hard for anybody to disassociate those negative things when in fiction, whether that's television, or whether that's in novels, or whether that's in regular movies and TV shows and series and everything, where one particular group is full was shown as the terrorist group, uh, coupled with bad news really happening, and coupled with the other thing that I talk about, which was very, very, very difficult to grow up with. Quite frankly, I feel like it's kind of unique to the Middle Eastern experience, as opposed to, and this is not, this is not a discussion, I'm, I'm trying not to refocus anything, but I will say we didn't even have any Arab American or Middle Eastern heroes to look up to in the 80s and 90s. The closest right. thing that we had was the Iron Sheik in WWF wrestling. And that, you know, he was a bad guy in that. So when you also don't have heroes, that's very, very difficult as well. So that's a whole other discussion. No, I mean, it's part of it too. You know, go ahead, Gwendolyn. <laughs> oh, I just, I'm, I guess there's something that, I guess something that's coming to my mind as I read this. And like I said, I got your, I got your book. It stood out to me from a banned book list. And so I guess there was a part of me as I was reading it, I was anticipating some controversy (laughs) and I was surprised because I'm like, it's not showing up. It's not showing up. And even the protest that she goes to this comment about, I didn't realize how loud or how much noise silence could be. Um, I'm sorry. I don't want to botch your words, but I I thought it was such a, a beautiful thing where she's even the protests that are mentioned are extremely peaceful and they're powerful. So I'm thinking, you know, where is the controversy? And as I'm reflecting on this, I am wondering about the buzzword white privilege and that people have misunderstood white privilege to think that it is you walk around and um, and people are just bowing at your feet and giving you stuff. But actually, what it kind of like, <laughs> I don't know if you remember Eddie Murphy from the 80s when he did that parody of on SNL, where he was walking around as a white man and people were just handing him stuff. It was yeah. very funny. Okay. <laughs> But at any rate, um, that white privilege is really the absence of ever needing to think about 
race. And what your book has done is in this really beautiful way is you have this adolescent story and that is part of the layer of adolescence. And I'm wondering if the reason why it is on a banned book list is because people want to deny that that would be part of an adolescent experience because white privilege means that you grow up and you have all of the regular youth angst, but you're not walking around thinking about your race or the implications of that as opposed to Shayla in the story. I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is this idea, you know, and, and someone, and I wish I could remember who tweeted it because I can't remember if it was someone retweeting somebody else, but they made a comment, something of, you know, when you are banning a book because you are trying to protect your child, then you need to think about the child that you're saying doesn't need protection. Like, you know, the, the child that's being featured in that book that somehow your privilege kind of outweighs the needs of that child. And I really, I really take issue with this idea that, oh, you know, my kid is too young to have to think about these concepts. Because if you're white and you say, my child is too young to have to think about this concept, they're only eight years old, why should they have to think about racism? And you completely ignore the fact that Black eight-year-old doesn't have that privilege, doesn't have the opportunity to say like, you know what, I'm too young to have to worry about this. So I shouldn't have this in my books. You know, it just doesn't make sense that some children should have this protection and this idealized childhood free from any serious thought. And the other thing is an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old are much more ready for these types of concepts. And I think some parents give them the respect that they deserve. I also think that I was really careful. And I think that all the authors that I know, the middle grade authors that I know, you know, we're really careful to understand the age group that we're writing for. So when I was working on A Good Kind of Trouble, I knew that there were some difficult concepts. Police brutality is, that's a heavy concept. Violence any type of rioting or protest can be scary for a young kid. And I was really careful to keep certain things off the page. There's things that are referred to. We don't see any overt violent acts on the page because I didn't see any need to do that. What I wanted was to give young people and their parents a place to sort out some of those ideas and images and to address the fact that young people are going to see these things. They're going to have questions. They're going to wonder why certain things are happening. Why not give them a safe place to have that conversation? It's frankly insulting to a parent of color for someone to say, your child doesn't need any protection, but mine does. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking the, the other day, I mean, my daughter is just a little over two and she was looking at herself in the mirror and she was just jumping up and down, you know, just this pure (laughs) awe and joy. And I was looking at her and I was just thinking at some point we take that away when you get older and you look in the mirror and you get critical of your image. Whereas Mm. in her youth right now, that's not present. All she sees is herself and the pure wonderment and joy of seeing her reflection. And somewhere along the way, I know that that gets chipped away. And I'm thinking about that in terms of what you're saying with the youth, that they they are confronted with a world where, you know, they're being bombarded with a lot of images and a lot of stories about right and wrong and things. And you've approached it in such a gentle and sweet way that I think would be helpful for any parent also to read this along with their child. I just loved it. I mean, I do want to ask you something about a choice that you made that I thought was really interesting with these characters with one of the interactions. And it was the Halloween costume where Mm -hmm. Shayla decided to dress like Black Panther and the principal is so passive aggressive. 
saying, don't you think that it would be better if you took that off? I mean, <laughs> but, but what I thought was really interesting. Oh no, no. It was a little bit later with the armband when the principal had called Shayla in for violating the dress code and wearing, wearing the armband and her mother comes in to talk to the principal and the mother is saying, this is not a violation of the dress code. I think I'm very interested in your choice there of after we're like, yay, go Shayla's mom. And we're happy because Trask is problematic. (laughs) And then Shayla's mom says, now I want you to apologize to the principal for not bringing this up in the correct way. What was going through your mind when you were making that decision for that's how the, that conversation was going to end. I thought it was really great. It did surprise me. It's not how I expected for it to go, but I, I really, I liked it. I'm just wondering what was going in that decision. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that were going on there. You know, when one of the things that's really common in the Black community is this idea of we need to act better. We need to always make sure that, you know, don't give them a reason, basically, you know, is, is kind of the cry heard around our community of make sure you're put together, make sure you're acting right. Don't give anyone a reason to think like you're one of those other kind. Because of that, there is like this sense of it made sense to me that like any black mom going in is going to be on one hand being very protective of her child and making sure that things go right. But at the other side being like, I don't want anyone to make the mistake that I have any disrespect for rules or that I don't have an understanding of how things were supposed to work. And I want to make sure that they see that I am raising my child correctly. And so that's what's happening in that moment. Plus mama does feel very strongly of that there is a right and wrong way to do things. And that maybe Shayla might have not have had success if she had tried to talk to the principal, but that is something that she should have considered in mama's opinion, at least. So I wanted it to be clear. I also wanted to be careful that I didn't try to imply that the principal was like a complete villain that needed to be taken down. Um, And it's interesting because I did a school visit at an elementary school and the principal was there at the visit. One of the teachers asked the question, she's like, you know, do you consider the principal a villain? I hemmed and hawed a little bit because I thought, you know, on one hand, if there has to be a villain in the story somewhere, she comes the closest to filling that role. At the same time, it's sort of like, what I said about the police officers and having been served a certain diet is that here is an administrator who is trying to do her job, who has certain beliefs and understandings about what makes a school run well and what makes a school not run well. Some of her decisions are problematic and come from a place of ignorance. That doesn't make her a bad person person. It makes her an uninformed person. And my hope was that that by ending the exchange the way that it does, it lets the principal hold on to enough dignity to maybe be willing to be gracious about changes that might come in the school year ahead and, and not hold on to anger and be like, well, you know, now I'm really angry because I got into a fight with this parent. Versus like, okay, we resolved this issue amicably and we can both move forward. Yeah, there was no humiliation right. at all that. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, and I guess that's also maybe reminding me of the title with A Good Kind of Trouble with the approach that Lewis had in the spirit of Martin Luther King, this idea of retaining your dignity in part by respecting the other person's humanity, but still that can mean saying no to something that's problematic at the same time. So you can not, you can stand up for yourself without dehumanizing the other, I guess. Right. And that's what I I really enjoyed. So my question for you then is, do you think the people who wanted your book banned read it? No, (laughs) I'm just a hundred percent. No. Okay. I'm just, that that's gotta be obvious. I mean, I, I, I I don't, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interject myself here, but from where my studying of the book ban is the vast majority of them 
either were not read in their entirement or a simple sentence or a passage was taken completely out of context and then that was blown up. That's me kind of generalizing, but my opinion is none of these books really were read. This is, I mean, you know, I, okay. So Lisa, I was expecting something juicy in here and you gave (laughs) me a sweet, sweet story. I'm like, you know, it reminded me of my, my dad um, would say that every Sunday at church in the bulletin, there would be a list of the movies that Catholics were not allowed to see. And he said, you know, that that's the list we looked at to see what we were going to (laughs) watch. So here I'm looking at it. I'm sorry. Is that a true story that actually happened? Yeah. <laughs> at your church, you, uh, you. Uh, no, my dad, my no, but dad. I mean, but wait, where was this? Where was this list? In the, you know, when you go to mass and you get that bulletin as you leave, there used to be like a list of movies that Catholics were not supposed to see. No, I'm sorry. I did not know that. I, and I went to Catholic school my whole life. We did not do that at my Catholic school. Well, this was my dad though. So this would have been in the fifties. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. Okay, now, okay. Got it. Wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. Well, uh, do you remember when the movie dogma came out though? The Catholics were told. Not oh my to... gosh. Yeah. I do remember that. And yeah, I, so and I had I, to see it. Right. <laughs> were, I waited were you a came, good Catholic I, I, I did. I waited until it came out on video. I was like, or like <laughs> when it was free on HBO, I was like, okay, I didn't pay money for it. So yes. Okay. Well, all I'm saying is that if you're when I saw that this is on the band book, I'm like, I'm looking for something juicy. And Lisa, that's not what you gave me. You gave me a sweet, inspiring, thoughtful story. And all I could, and I mean, even, well, something else that I thought was really beautiful was when it came to participating in Black Lives Matter or this awareness, and Shayla is sharing the armbands with her friends and a couple of her friends say, but we're not black. Are we supposed to wear it? And I really loved that it was like, yes, you can. This is when we're saying Black Lives Matter, this does not mean that it is only for people who are black to recognize. This is something that is in the spirit of humanity. This is a, a connecting force, not a, not something to drive people apart. Or is that fair to say? Right. No. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I really wanted that message to be in there because I saw the difference, you know, I saw what it looks like when Black Lives Matter was perceived as being something that was very outside the realm, you know, that it was just, I'm, I'm hesitating because I mean, it is for black people. It is about black people. Obviously it is Black Lives Matter. But it wasn't until the murder of George Floyd and there was kind of this kind of rebirthing of the movement, if you will. I think that there was a better understanding of what Black Lives Matter actually meant and that it was clear that it was saying our lives matter too, not our lives matter more than anyone else's. And how people showed up for that, all sorts of people, not just Black people, showed up for that to say, we understand this cause to be true. We stand with our Black friends, our Black family members to say, yes, your lives do matter, just like our lives matter. And that to me is the strength in what happened more recently. It's, I mean, I, I think that, that the bannings that we see are kind of a backlash to of the people who really are against people coming together in that way. I mean, it it's really makes me sad and just disgusted. There are people who would rather keep us divided, who really do not want to see this support you know, kind of crossing of the bridge and and holding hands together that they really want it to be a society where it's like, no, you stay over there and we'll be over here. That's the way it's been. And that's the way we want it to be that they don't want their children exposed to stories that feature young people that don't look like their children. I think, you know, when I grew up, I didn't read a single book where the main character was black, not one. And in fact, when I first started writing, my characters were white and it was because I hadn't seen books with black characters. So it didn't even occur to me to write books with black characters. And I thought, now, why is it okay for me to grow up like that? And for me not to be, you know, like, and for people to think, well, it's fine for you to read stories about kids that don't look like you, but it's not fine for my kid to read stories about kids that don't look like them or are different from them in any way. You know, I mean, it's like, 
that's how we grow as a society, though. That's how we become stronger and more united as a society by understanding each other. Yeah, it seems like part of the in the last few decades, there was just the overt extreme racism. And then the type of correction was still driven by the same people to just say, okay, there is no race. Let's just say, I don't see race. There is no race. And that's not, that's not it either. That's not it. I mean, the denial of race to use that as the judgment for somebody is problematic and oppressive, but the denial of it is just as oppressive. It's not celebrating a, a culture, a way of being that when we're talking about black lives, just it's also about celebration of achievements. It's not just discussions about oppression. That's right. that's what I think. And to go from, you know, just the denial of race at all is just as it's just an erasing so much talent and experience and a, a way of being in the world that's just as problematic. A hundred percent. You know, we're in really scary times right now. I, I think that, you know, many people have said that this book banning issue, this whole thing of labeling so many things as being critical race theory when they clearly are not, when, you know, there's clearly no, no understanding of what CRT actually is to say that like that my book can, is, you know, CRT is ridiculous, but there's a whole lot going on that has nothing to do with these books. That is, you know, a political agenda. I go back to thinking about where we were just a couple of years ago, where it seemed as if we were in a place where there was hope and a sense of like, oh, maybe change is coming. There's enough people who are speaking out for calling out for change, wanting to see equality in our society. And the fact that people calling out for that you know, loudly created this whole other backlash of people saying, you know, no, this is not that there's something about my life that's now being challenged. And so this is not something that I want to see. You know, I just got an email from someone saying, you know, in her county, all the copies of A Good Kind of Trouble have been pulled from the library. I thought, I have no desire really to sit down with the parents who are, are calling for the books to be pulled, mm -hmm. but you really have to question. It's like, what is it that you are afraid of? What truly is it that you think will happen from your child reading this book and other similar books that are exploring a life that looks different from your child's life? What do you think is going to happen? What do you truly think is the harm here for you? Or child. I can't help but wonder if there's in the Venn diagram that there's an overlap between the people who want to ban your book and books like these and who are also saying that Elon Musk getting Twitter is going to allow for free speech. <laughs> I can't help but wonder right? if there's an overlap there. I, I think, yeah, I think that there's a, that there's a big, scary overlap. As you're giving your talks, as you're, you know, maybe doing book signings and whatnot, is there something that has stood out to you in a really joyous way? Somebody has said something about your book and what it meant to them, or has there been a reoccurring theme of people are getting something out of your book and you didn't realize it was going to touch people in this particular way? What has been a joyful part of you talking and touring about your book? Oh, gosh, thank you for that question. That's lovely. Um, you know, the, the two things that really delight me is um, I get a lot of letters from young Black readers saying that they were so happy to see themselves on the page of a book. That was my primary reason for writing the book. And so knowing that I'm reaching those kids and that they are seeing themselves and have the opportunity to read a book that they can hold close and be like, you know, oh my gosh, here I am. Here I am fully represented in a book just means the world to me. But the other letters that I get that I equally, you know, like hold with joy are from white readers, usually parents more so than the kids themselves who say, I really didn't understand Black, Black Lives Matter. And then I read your book and I get it now. 
you know, it gives me goosebumps even, you know, like when, when I get those letters, because I think while that wasn't certainly wasn't the sole reason that I wrote the book and I wasn't really thinking about those parents when I wrote the book that I just think that's really lovely that there are those people out there who are open and willing to understand and have their minds changed about, you know, something that they thought they understood and, and realize like, oh no, that's not, not what it was at all. And now I get it. I think that's really cool. But, you know, I just, I mean, I love meeting young readers with the pandemic. It's been really hard doing lots of visits over Zoom, but they bring so much joy and encouragement to me and remind me of, you know, that's who I'm writing for. They still need more stories and I'm going to keep, regardless of whether the books get banned or not, I'm going to keep working and telling as many stories as I can. If you don't mind me asking this question, this kind of goes to goes back to Gwen's uh, allegory about her father in the Catholic movie. <laughs> you, you, I mean, I, I'm not, I believe, I, I'm, I'm finding, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I can see how this could be, a question could be misinterpreted, but since the book has been banned, quote unquote, have you found that there's been your search engine optimization, if you track that, has has risen, have sales risen? Has this actually been a good thing for the book? Now, it's not a good thing ultimately because it's not getting into the hands of the people that that should be reading it and everything uh, in those places. But has there been a spike in searches and sales? Actually, no. I I was wow. really hoping okay. that that would happen. I thought, oh, maybe I'll you know see some great big spikes, like Search, yeah, <laughs> or something. The problem. I mean, there's lots of problems, but as far as something like this turning into sales, the reason why that doesn't work with middle grade and younger books is because children aren't the purchasers. It is parents who are the purchasers. Although, you know, Gwendolyn, you said, you know, like, oh, you you got the book with like, oh, you know, like, oh, what's going to be juicy? <laughs> you let me down. I'm so pleased that you, that you did. But for a lot of parents, you know, you have all these choices of like, what books am I going to get for my kids? A lot of parents aren't going to gravitate. It's like, well, let me make sure that I get them the books that are banned because there's always going to be a small question in their minds of maybe there is something objectionable in that book. Maybe there is a problem. So there's so many books. There's so many books that aren't banned. I can get my kid one of those books. What's really awful is that for the types of books that I write, I so need support from librarians. Those are the people who are doing the hard work. I love librarians to death. They're the ones who see a kid come in and recommend just the right book for them. Okay. Um, if the books aren't in the library, then that's a book that they're not recommending to that kid. You know, if, if the book's not on the shelves, they're not telling the kid that they should get that book. And they're really caught in a really horrible place with parents calling for these books to be removed. So yeah, sadly, um, I wish I had a different answer for you, Rudy, but sadly, no. I mean, our books just kind of quietly disappear. They're it's, not in the classroom. They're not in the library and kids don't find them. It's very interesting because we we had a, a, another author on here and you, I think you explained the, di the differences perfectly. I think that book was geared more towards uh, young adults, whereby those young adults probably have some control over the books that they can purchase and they can search. And, and whereas yours, because it's geared towards really, I mean, kids that don't have the money to, to get a hold of these books and they would primarily get them through a library. That's interesting. That's a very interesting explanation there. So I automatically would assume that you were going to say, yep, there was a spike. Yep, everything is, was great. And I'm glad that you said that there wasn't and that you have been impacted on it. Because I, I am still of the belief of, oh, yeah, any kind of news is good news, is, even in sales. But you, you're, this, is, this was very helpful that this is damaging and it's not getting to the hands of people. I see at the beginning here all sorts of awards that this book has received. NPR Best Book of the Year, Kirkus Best Middle, Middle Grade Book, a School Library Journal Best Middle Grade Book. I mean, what other kind of accolades or awards has this book received? Um, yeah, you know, it was really well honored. And one of the, it received the Walter Dean Meyer honor. Yeah. It, it was one of the honor books. That was something that meant so much to me because 
it just kind of made the statement in my mind of like, okay, you're, you're doing exactly what you wanted to do with this book. I mean, when you start off writing, I mean, this was my debut and I was really unfamiliar with how publishing worked. I didn't know anything about list or stars. Um, in fact, it's really funny. You know, I, the only thing I knew about stars was, you know, things getting like a five-star review. And so when my publisher like wrote to tell me like, oh, you got a star from Kirkus. I was like, oh, I got one star. Like that <laughs> sounds <laughs> that like, is, isn't that bad? Like only one star, like, you know, I mean, that's usually, and it's like, oh no, no, no. Like a starred review versus not getting a starter, you know, that's a good thing. So I had a lot to learn when I started this journey. I wonder sometimes now it's like, oh, you know, is, is the fact that the book did really well when it came out, you know, is that part of the reason why it's now being the focus of, you know, this movement to ban it with all these other books? I mean, I guess you don't ban books that you don't hear of, but I've been really, I've been really honored and, and privileged that the book did come out to a, a really good reception. It made me feel as if, it was the type of book that people were ready for and wanting. I don't know what the future holds for publishing. Publishing is in, in such a huge state of flux right now. It will be interesting to see whether or not publishers continue to encourage and buy books that they know could potentially be banned. Oh, that's an interesting have you, question. Have you heard anything, I mean, from publishers about what the reactions are to this? I mean, obviously publishers want to publish books and get them into the maximum amount of hands, maximum places, but have you heard anything at all about they will be giving a second look? You know, I, I haven't heard anything like that. I mean, my publisher is very supportive and feels badly about what is going on, but publishing is a business, you know, so for every book like mine that they're publishing, they're also publishing books on the other side from people who are writing books about why we should be banning stuff like this, you know, so, you know, and those books sell too. So they're going to publish what sells. If books that are getting banned, if it seems like the sales for those books are going down, then I would say, yes, you know, that they will, will stop publishing books like that because it's a business, but, you know, they're not doing this for charity, nor should they. I mean, I understand that, you know, it is a business. They are not publishing like we think people should read books like this. They are publishing books that they think people will buy. Yeah, it's, it's expensive. I mean, I, I'm a I mean, and Gwen knows this too. I think she's in the same boat. We're, we're both self-published authors and we know how expensive that is and how impossible that is because we don't have the resources of a publisher. And we, we kind of, we have to, you have to respect the publishing business as to, hey, look, like they're putting a lot of their resources and their own equity into this. Like they need to get paid back and then some so they could publish more books. So it's difficult. Yeah, this this book banning thing, that really is probably where it's going to play out as to whether it's good, there's going to be an impact in publishing. That'll be interesting to see. Hopefully, fingers crossed, your book does start to spike in sales and completely understand. And, and sorry that you're going through this, though. As Gwen said, there's no reason that this should have been banned in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah. Is, is <laughs> your, your other book something to say? Is there... Are you working on a third book or how many books have you published? And does this theme of what it is like to be a Black adolescent, does that weave its way in your other books as well? My main characters are always going to be Black characters because I, I feel like, you know, as a Black writer, that makes sense to me. I have two books out, uh, A Good Kind of Trouble and Something to Say. And then a third one comes out later this year. It's very different. It is also middle grade. Um, it's called Map Maker, but it is a fantasy it's a complete departure as far as, you know, a book that's looking at some uh, social issue because it's fantasy and it's much more, the world is bigger. There's more than one world and it's, it's, you know, the villain, it has nothing to do with, you know, a societal villain. It's a, 
imagine, imaginary villain, but which I loved. I have to say, I had so much fun writing something that was was pure fantasy and and a delight. And the main character is a boy this time. the The irony, though, is so my second book, something to say. It never occurred to me that a good kind of trouble would get any heat because I thought it is. I think really sweet. And it does, I think, avoid showing anything that I think would be objectionable. Something to say was the book that I thought, oh, there's going to be people who are going to be really annoyed with this book because the book isn't really about this, but kind of behind the scenes in the book, the school that the main character goes to is going through a school name change. It's currently called John Wayne Middle School. And there's people in the community that want to change the name to Sylvia Mendez Middle School. And I thought, oh my God, you know, people are going to come for me like for saying anything about John Wayne. And I thought, you know, well, I guess it probably shows my age because I'm like, well, probably there's people who just don't even know who that is. And so they're not coming for me for that reason. Cause they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't know who you're actually not attacking, but just shining a light on some of the comments that he made. Uh, that was the book that I was worried about. And that so far, and now maybe it's because it came out during the pandemic, it did not receive a lot of the uh, noise that A Good Kind of Trouble did. I didn't, wasn't able to kind of tour with that book because of the pandemic. So it could just be that people don't even know that it's out there, but no one has objected to that one. And so we'll see what happens when Mapmaker comes out in September to see whether or not people will think that there's any issues in there that are saying something about society. I don't think so. Or saying that, you know, they don't want their kid reading that book. That will be interesting. I think that if there's people who protest against that book or want to ban that book, it'll really shine a light on the fact that this is driven by racism and not by any fear for protecting their child. Is that the same publisher? Yes. Okay. Got it. Okay. That's okay. That's good to hear. Same publisher, same editor. Lisa, how can people get in touch with you? I'm, I'm just so happy. I want for everyone to get your books. We're going to, we're going to have a link to your website and everything, but is there, are you, do you have a social media handle or something that you'd like to put out there? Sure. You can find me at, at Lee's Ray, which is L E E S E R A Y. Um, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was, I'm so glad we got in touch. I'm so glad that when I reached out, you said, yes, <laughs> this has just been, and for me, I'm a total book nerd, bookworm, and there's nothing more exciting to me than to be able to actually speak to the authors of the work that I read. And I really appreciate this conversation. I value your work and I'm just excited that you're on the scene and writing these kinds of stories. It's great. Oh, it's great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was really fun. I really appreciated talking to you both. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. Sorry for the interruption. Amongst my uh, writing activities and, and Arab American activism, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer by day and still have to manage all of that as well. So my apologies for any of the intrusion. Thanks for writing that book. I, I really did speak to me. And my pleasure. And, and so you're saying if I ever get pulled over to use your name. <laughs> sure. Yes, uh, actually, yes. Uh, that probably won't get you into any, any further trouble. But just say that you know Rudy Sallow and then they'll just start giggling and let you know. That's, that's, what should, that's what should happen. If it doesn't, well, then, you know, pass it. That's awesome. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Sallow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. And if you'd like to sponsor a show or if you have any questions and want to reach out, you can contact us, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. We're also on Patreon if you want extra content and how to support the show, join our book club. We're at patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. Okay, until next time. Bye.